First of all, I want to thank all those who, who prayed and expressed concern, those who actually physically helped as well uh, with my little experience in vertigo. Um, and uh, appreciate your love and concern. That was, was great. And on that note, <laughs> one of the um, one of the tough things sometimes for a pastor to do is to finish a series. Because he finishes a series, the question is, where do you go from here? And uh, so that was sort of my dilemma. Last week we talked about the faith father's heart, and. Uh, so I was had a couple places thinking about going, and the Lord says, you probably ought to go here. So um, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the passages that we covered in that was John 15, where it talks about the vine and the branches and abiding. And, uh, and I thought it would be good as we would go into uh, our study today, to go into the passage and the topic of the fruit of the Spirit. So, Lord willing, that's where we're going to be over the next couple weeks, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the life that we have because of your son. We just ask that as we rest in the spirit and depend on him for leading and guiding, that we will manifest this fruit so that others would see uh, the heart change that has gone in us. We give thanks in Jesus' name. So we're in Galatians chapter 5, and Tom read for us beginning at verse 16, and I just wanted to pick up on a couple terms that are, are mentioned here, and then uh, look into our passage down in verses 22 and 23 specifically. Obviously, we are not going to get through all of those because, after all, this is Pastor Tim, and you know he doesn't move that fast. So, I would like for us to pick up on a couple words here, and let's look at verse 16. But I, He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, the first phrase is to walk by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? We know that to get from one place to another, there's all kinds of different ways that we can transport ourselves with vehicle or bicycle, but the most common way, and we know that is to walk, to walk. But what does it mean to walk? I gave this illustration years ago. The way that we walk is an interesting thing because basically, we throw ourselves out of balance. We're standing up. Some, sometimes we're standing up. 
And when we stand up and we want to go somewhere, how do we go there? We basically have to throw ourselves out of balance. We have to lean forward and then we start to move. And as we do, we put a foot forward and what does that foot do? It catches us so that we don't fall over. And if we are then walking, we're constantly throwing ourselves out of balance and catching ourselves. And I believe that it's a beautiful picture what it means to walk by the Spirit. Because basically we say, if I want to get somewhere, if I want to walk in the Spirit, I'm basically going to have to move out of equilibrium and put myself out of balance and then trust the Lord in His Spirit to steady me up. And then this process is repeated over and over and over again. And we walk. Now we don't think too much about it uh, until we can't walk or we have dizzy spells and it's uncomfortable to walk. But normally we don't even give it a thought. We just say, well, I'm going to go there. We don't even say it. We just go there and we walk. And so there's a picture then of ongoing dependence, throwing myself literally into, into the spirit and saying, you've, you've got to make sure that I don't fall. It's your job, your responsibility, spirit. I'm just going to trust you for every step along the way. Then down in verse 18, he says, if you are led by this spirit, and so then we have another picture here that not only are we walking, but we're directed in the way that we should go. And so part of what we're looking at here then is this ongoing uh, relationship, ongoing communication, ongoing dependence of, of our lives with the Spirit of God. And we come down to this part where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's been contrasted to the desires of the flesh. In fact, we go back up to verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. In other words, there's a tension there. We have other options other than walking in the spirit. We can operate in the flesh, but they're contrary to one another. It's not that they're, one is neutral and the other one's positive, or, but one is negative and one is positive, and either we make the choice one way or the other. So he compares then to the flesh and in verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives us this whole list. We're not going to go down through the list. You can read it there. But he says, these things are in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. And then he goes to describe the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll just 
read these briefly and we'll touch on a couple of them this morning. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. What he's talking about here is one fruit. He's not talking about different varieties or different fruits. He's talking about one fruit. In other words, when the Spirit is in, in control in our life, it's going to produce in us these qualities. So let's look at some of these. And we want to look at it from the perspective of, first of all, the attitude that we have and then the action. We were talking in Sunday school that we can do a lot of things that manifest an action in our life, but really don't come from a heart. We, we have to do them. How many have paid taxes? And your heart was really in it, right? You know that old line that says, everybody says you, you should uh, pay taxes with a smile. I tried, but they wanted cash. But it's that kind of thing. We, we say, well, did it really flow out of a heart's desire to, to meet my obligation to pay taxes? No, I did it because it was required of me. So we're not talking about things that are required of us, but rather something that flows first from the heart that says, my desire, my delight is to walk with the Lord. My desire is to be under the control of the Spirit. And I want then to manifest these qualities. It isn't a matter of saying, okay, You've got to love. You've got, you must have joy or else. No, it's anything like that. It either flows out of our relationship with the Lord or, and in this case, as the Spirit expresses that. We talked about John 15, 5. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you really can't manifest these qualities apart from the Spirit. And you say, oh, does that mean that I, I can't possibly love and I can't possibly have joy? He says, no, but the heart's desire is the thing that, that drives this. If we want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, let's not talk about what the flesh can do. Let's talk about what the Spirit can do. And the, flirt, the, the flesh manifests itself in all kinds of things that go off in weird directions. They might start out good, but they end up going all, all askew. He says, but the Spirit is only going to be the only one that does those things right and in the right way. So let's look at the first couple ones here. And I almost hate mentioning the first one because we've camped on this, this topic so many times, but it doesn't hurt for us to do it one more time. The first one is the word love. We've said that the Greeks use four different kinds of words for love. 
Uh, one that had to do with those things that were a lot erotic, those things that were driven by lust. Um, that's not used in scripture. Another one had to do with talking about relationships in the family. And maybe where we get the term blood is thicker than water. Because there's some sort of relationship there. Because we are part of a family. And there is a love that is expressed there. Then the more common words that are used in the New Testament is phileo. Which is one where we have sometimes expressed as kindness. Those things that are things in common. Um, Philadelphia. The city, Delphi, of brotherly love, philos, there. And so we have that idea of mutual care and concern. And then this word, agape. Agape really was a word that was in the Greek language, but wasn't really used very much until the New Testament came along. And then the details of what that word meant was fleshed out and filled out and we have descriptions like in 1 Corinthians 13. But let me give you a definition and and uh, I've given this a definition for love before so this one's a little bit different but it's along the same lines. Love is an unconquerable benevolence. In other words, it wants somebody else's good. I want to do something for someone else that's good, and I'm going to do it, and you can't stop me. I'm just going to do it. That's the way it is. I want to do good. Now, this is not being obnoxious. That's not what this word is. It isn't a matter where you go, I'm going to be in this person's face because it's for their good, and I'm going to do this until they get what I... No, no. Please, no. But rather to say, I want the very best for you. And even if you rebuff me, even if you insult me, even if you push me away, I still want the same thing for you. Because it's good and right. I think that the, the concept of love, in the, especially in the scriptures, is never found too far away from the definition of truth because they have to be co-joined. You can't be loving and operate apart from the truth. The person says, go in to see the doctor, and the doctor goes. You go, doc, how is it? And the doctor goes, hey, it's going great. Come back and see me six months. You go home and you go, great. And the doctor turns to the nurse and goes, well, you don't need to make an appointment for him because it could be dead in five. <laughs> you go, wait a minute. It would have been helpful to tell the truth. You weren't loving by just saying, yeah, everything is okay. It's got to be invested in the truth. So it doesn't really what matter what, how a person might rebuff you for your position and your understanding, but your desire for them to experience something good. They may push you away, 
they may reject what you have to say, but you still desire the same thing for them. Why? Because it's good and it's right. It's true. It's kind of tough. We have seen it this last week at some of the decisions from the court. People on both sides. Oh, over here, this side celebrating, this side over here, you know, in anguish and pain and, and vitriolic statements being made back and forth. And you go, no, I see love as an open-handed thing saying, I'm giving to you an opportunity of something good. You may slap my hand away and say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. That's within your right. I'm not going to force it on you. This is no, what I have to offer. And that's the nature of love. 1 Corinthians 13 in the description of love says, Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. There's that link there. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never, ever ends. It's an unconquerable benevolence. We have some examples, I think, in Scripture. Um, we could probably go to John 3.16, where it describes the motivation between God sending His Son to provide salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. His desire for us was to experience everlasting life. His desire for us was to escape judgment and perish and perishing. His desire for us then was one of love and that's why he sent his son. Now, what have people done with this son? Some have found him to be Savior and Lord and accept him. Others have said, I don't believe any of that. Don't have anything to do with it. Pushed him away. But God still sent his son to sacrifice on our behalf. But we're also talking about the uh, fruit of the spirit when it comes to the life of a believer. Well, that was an expression that was expressed by the father. But what about us? What about one-on-one -on -one relationships? I've shared this before when we've talked about this topic of love, but to me it's one of the best illustrations of the character of love lived out between two individuals, and it's between Jesus and Judas. In John chapter 13, we have that account in the upper room, and we saw this when we were going through the upper room, that Judas had been with Jesus for some three and a half years, whatever the life of the public ministry, that Judas was part of that inner circle of disciples. And we know that Jesus knew 
what kind of character Judas had. We know that Jesus knew what he was up to. When we get to the upper room, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He knew who it was. The remarkable thing and, and the greatest picture of love to me was that none of his other disciples had a clue. None of his other disciples knew that there was any issue between Jesus and Judas. None of them knew that Judas had in his heart to betray Jesus. Jesus alone knew that. Scripture tells us after the fact that was recorded into the Gospels that Judas was the keeper of the funds and that he had been stealing from it. Jesus knew. You ever had anybody who's disloyal to you? Ever had anybody turn on you? Jesus knew that this thing had not come out. No one else knew but he and Judas. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And we go, ah, <laughs> he finally spilled the beans. And Jesus said, when asked, who is it? He says, the one I share um, morsel of bread that I've dipped probably in hummus. But that's a good thing. Anyway, and you would think at that point that John and Peter, who were asking the question, would then stare at him and watch him, his every move. But then scripture tells us that he gave it to Judas. And Judas, when he had received it, then Jesus said, um, what you have to do, go and do quickly. And Judas got up. And the text then is quite revealing at that point because the text say that none of the disciples understood why he was going. They thought maybe he's going to go put an offering. This Passover time, customary to put an offering in the offering box, and he was a money keeper, so he was doing that. Maybe he was going to go and pay for the meal that they had just enjoyed at the Passover. They didn't know. And so Judas got up and walked out of the room. The beautiful thing is Judas, on his way to betray Jesus, could have repented, turned around, walked back into the room, sat down, and none would have been the wiser. Jesus and Jesus alone would have known what had happened. To me, that's love. He offered him life. He invited him into close fellowship. He invited him to the inner circle of these 12 men to be a part of his life. Judas rejected it, but Jesus didn't reject him. What a picture of love. What a picture of love. 
Now we're commanded to love, but I wanted to give the illustration first because one thing about the fruit of the Spirit, it isn't just a matter of saying, you've got to do this, I already made that point. And so if I use the idea of we're commanded to do this, it is not from the sense of you've got to perform, but rather to say, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. I had a professor in seminary who gave us a massive project. He was having some physical issues, some emotional issues going on while he was teaching our, our class. So he wasn't always available to us, but he had given us this design, this project, and it was like 90% of our grade. We were to come up with a philosophy of Christian education. He was a Christian education teacher. And so we came to back to him and we go, what do you want? What is it supposed to look like? Uh, do you want an outline? Do you? And he goes, I want your philosophy of Christian education. And we go, you, please, this is most of our grade. You've got to be a little more specific. You've got to tell us what you want. Think of the commands that way. If I said to you, um, hey, Tim, I want you to go to the grocery store and get exactly what I need. Okay? I'll put, provide the money, but you've got to get it. And you go, fine, I only have one question. What do you need? <laughs> right? What are you looking for? What is this that you want me to do? Well, it's the same sort of thing here. When he gives us commands, it isn't so much that you've got to do this. Well, there's some element of that. The primary thing is to say, wow, now I know those things that you desire of me. That makes my job a lot easier. So we went back to the prof a couple times and said, come on, you've got to give us some more details. And it took two or three times of approaching him, several of us in the group, for him to finally give us more of an outline and a desire of what he wanted and how long the paper should be and some of those ramifications. And, and when we got done with that class, we were going, primary reason was that whole lack of understanding of what he was looking for was a worrisome thing for us because our grade was riding on it but here the Lord has told us what he wants so that we don't have to guess we don't have to figure out he's already told us Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 it says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love. There's that concept of walking again. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. Wow. Okay, I get it. But I want you to notice this outline. That not only is there the command, there's provision. God doesn't call us to do something. 
without providing the resources to do that very thing. Tim already preached on this point just a moment ago. What did he say? Give me some money. If you want me to go to the store and get some stuff for you, then where's the money? And the same sort of thing. If God has called us to love, he also gives us provision, the empowerment to do that thing. If he, in Romans 5, 5, it says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit then empowers us to love, keeps us on track, guides us, and empowers us to do that very thing. One facet, then, of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's move on to another one. Second one in our list here in Galatians is joy. Now, our Sunday school class, we've been in the book of Philippians. If you need a book to reflect on what joy is, Philippians is your book. He talks about joy and rejoicing all through that book. But what is joy? What is joy? Joy and I'm giving you my own definition. You want to come up with something else? That's fine. Joy is the pleasurable reflection of our relationship with our God. It's contrast to happiness. Happiness is sort of dependent on what is happening. And so circumstances then can, can make us joyful or not joyful, or make us happy or not happy. But joy isn't like that. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. In fact, I would suggest that joy really comes into its own when circumstances go south, when they go bad. When, when things are not good, because anybody can be happy when things are happy, right? But to be happy when things go south and when they go bad. That's another whole thing. And joy then speaks to that. What happens for a believer when things are not good? And how in the world then can we have joy? I love this expression in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, speaking of the Lord, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And so our joy is inseparable from our salvation. The fact that when something comes up against us and it is not good, we turn our attention away from the issue and to our relationship with the Lord and find our joy in the fact that that is unshakable. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, we have that great picture after the chapter on faith, talking about Jesus, and he says he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, and he endured the shame. Why did Jesus suffer? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he allow himself to be crucified? Why did he allow himself to die? Because he was looking beyond that to our salvation. And for that picture then needs to be in our heart and mind as well. That we look beyond the circumstances and the issues of the day and we find our joy in the fact that our relationship is unshakable. Even when our world is shaken. We're given a command and again it is our response then as the Spirit moves in our heart. Philippians 4.4 4, Rejoice in the Lord. Re rejoice in the Lord. And again I say That's the command, we're to rejoice. But again, we're given a provision. By now you probably are guessing where the provision is coming from. In Romans 14, 17, it says, The kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, one of the great things about the Holy Spirit, because when Jesus said he would go away, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And what he's going to say, he's going to speak of me. Okay? So one of the great things about the Holy Spirit working in our life is that he reminds us what Jesus Christ has done for us. He takes us back again to the cross. He takes us and shows us our need of a Savior and the fact that he provided a Savior. The Holy Spirit reminds us of all that stuff. And then he says, let's just focus on that as opposed to the circumstances. So down through the ages, we have, we have stories and you can read Fox's Books of Martyrs. You can read the modern books, Fox Book of Martyrs of, of believers who have uh, suffered much for the cause of Christ and for Christ himself. How do they do that? It's because they're looking beyond this temporal experience. And they're looking at eternity and their relationship with the Lord. And when everything else gets stripped away. That's still steadfast and sure. So what would people say about you? Are you a joyful person? I heard a phrase years ago, and I've quoted it often. <laughs> he says, None, no believer should look like a frontispiece for the book of Lamentations. None of us should look like, oh yeah, there's a perfect picture. Yeah, mm -hmm. book of Lamentations, yeah, that person right there would be on the cover. None of us should be that way. The third word here is peace. Peace. 
It was actually a word that was used to describe a country in those days that was under a benevolent king. And people could sigh, breathe a sigh of relief because they knew that the king was good and fair and righteous and just. It was also a term that was used, and you're going to love this, for a peace officer. And we go, well, that's a long way from a policeman of today. But they actually had people who would be in the village that their job was not to lock up the bad guys, but to promote peace in, this, in the town. Deal with those issues that are troublesome and bring it to the place so a person could be at peace. So let me give you a description of peace. Peace is the tranquility of the soul in the midst of the storms of life. Peace. Tranquility of the soul in the midst of life. There's two aspects of peace. One is our position. We have peace with God. Um, it's found in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is no small thing because we were at uh, we were adversaries of God because of our sin. We were under the wrath of God because of our sin until we came to have Jesus Christ payment for our sin. Take care of our sin issue. And now we're at peace with the righteous judge. That's our standing. But there's a practical aspect of that as it works its way into our life. And that is, how do we deal with the troubling issues of life? And can we be at peace? In first, in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, it says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. There's an interesting illustration that's borne out in Scripture. Jesus had talked to his disciples, and he said, Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. They're going to bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, and don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself. What you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. In other words, be at peace. It'll be okay. If you want a contrasting word to peace, I think a very good word that's found in Scripture is the idea of fear or anxiousness is even better. When we're anxious, we're not at peace. So Jesus had warned his disciples of this and says, it's, when they call you and they bring you before, it's going to happen. 
you probably all know, I was called for jury duty. I didn't serve. Uh, they didn't put me on the actual jury, but got to go and see some of the workings of the court. But could you imagine being called before the magistrates? And as Jesus warned him, he says, you're going to be called before the rulers and authorities. You're going to be called before the big bosses. You're going to be called before those people that will have all the vestments and, and authority and power and might there. And they can decide your fate, so-called. What's our natural response when something like that happens? <laughs> I don't want that. I'm anxious, fearful. What do I say? What do I do? And that very well could be the response. There's lots of things that can bring fear into our lives. Reflecting on uh, our kids, our son back in Tennessee, Matthew, has a daughter that's old enough to drive. And our daughter here in Woodland has a daughter that's old enough to drive. They hop in the car, they pull out of the driveway, they go down the road and out of our sight. And the moms turn on the switch from I'm okay to anxiousness. And the longer they're gone, and we don't hear from them, the more that dial is cranked. Pretty soon it gets over into the red line section. <laughs> Wonder what happened? Who should we call? What's happening to Anxiousness, fear of the unknown. Holy Spirit gives us peace, the tranquility of the soul in the midst of the storms of life. If the truth be known, what does our anxiousness get us? Nothing. It doesn't solve the issue one way or the other, does it? Just maybe heartburn. So then we come to the book of Acts. Jesus has said, you're going to be called before these magistrates. What's going to happen? And sure enough, Peter and John are called before the magistrates in Acts 4. And they said, okay, tell us what you're doing and why you're doing it. And we want you to stop doing it. They already knew what they were doing. They were talking about Jesus. And so in Acts 4, Peter and John give the defense. They speak truth into the situation and say, this is what's going on. And should we listen to you or should we do what God wants us to do? Do what God wants us to do. Listen to the, the reflection of those leaders. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen at that point. Don't be anxious. 
be at peace. They got before them. They weren't anxious. They spoke the truth. And those who were observing recognized they had been with Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, you're probably well familiar with. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wow. Are our hearts at peace? When anxiousness starts to come up, we say, no, I need to be walking with the Spirit here. I'm going to move out of my comfort zone and take a step of faith and trust the Spirit to give me peace in this situation. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts for indeed, for indeed in which you indeed were called. Jesus, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. So we have three then, three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace. And you can see that they're not separate, but they're all integrally uh, connected to one another. God has given us provision. He sent his spirit. He says, Jesus said, I, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Let it not be fearful. My peace I give to you. You struggling with the person and being loving? He's struggling with joy. He's struggling with peace. Go to the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit do what he does so well. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. And you surrender to that leadership. Let love, joy, and peace be found in you as God works his work in you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you not only give us life, that everlasting, but you've given us these qualities of your character and your nature that are a comfort and encouragement to our hearts and a benefit to all that we come in contact with. You are a great God. And we give thanks in Jesus' name.